For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet Dr. Regina Bradley, an educator who has chronicled the most important cultural milestones of hip-hop. Members of the local Jewish community offer opinions on the banning in Tennessee of the illustrated book Mouse, A Survivor's Tale. And explore downtown Tucson through a unique lens, the logic of dreams. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. What do Aquimini, Southern Playalistic Cadillac Music, and Zora Neale Hurston have in common? They all had a profound impact on our next guest, Dr. Regina N. Bradley. She served as the 2016 Nasir Jones Hip Hop Fellow at Harvard University. She's also authored three books, including The Outcast Reader, Essays on Race, Gender, and the Postmodern South. Next, we'll join Adiba Nelson as she speaks with Dr. Regina N. Bradley of Kennesaw State University about the importance of hip-hop when she was growing up in the South. I need to start with this first question because I watched um, some of your videos and you asked this question of almost everyone that sat with you. How did you get outcasted? Um, well, it's almost like an MO for me. It's like a calling card, but... <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think it's important for me because um, Outcast was my first introduction to the contemporary South. The series that I think you were watching, Outcast the Conversation, mm-hmm. uh, were focused on Outcast, but it's always fun to hear how people became a fan or how they became aware. Most of the people I talked to were fans, but there were one or two who were like, yeah, I've heard of them before. They weren't necessarily fans, which didn't sit right in my spirit, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, I saw know. you tell somebody <laughs> to get off your set. <laughs> Oh, I died. I was like, okay, she is very serious about her outcast. Um, So let me go ahead and ask you, I understand that you moved from the big city down to the south, correct? Yes, I lived in the DMV uh, right outside of Alexandria, Virginia, and moved to Albany, Georgia. Yep. So what was that experience like for you transitioning from a big city girl to southern country girl? I'm from New York City, and moving from New York to Tucson was a culture shock beyond all belief. So what was that like for you? Um, I think I had a nice transition because I was still a kid, so to speak. I was only 14. So there was there was that part of it. I think it would be a whole different uh, opening to that book if, if I had moved when I was an adult. I don't know. It was just a little bit different in terms of, you know, how important Christianity was and how important going to church was and being ladylike and all these things I never had thought about while living um, in the DMV. And obviously one of the biggest difference was the music that was playing. When I was living um, up up north in Northern Virginia, it was whatever was playing in New York. I had to um, completely revamp uh, what I thought hip hop was, who it was for, where it could go. Um, It was a cultural shock in the sense that everything um, literally was, was black and white. I think that was one of the biggest shocks for me because in, in the DMV, you know, it's such a multicultural place. I mean, like, folks were very proud of where they were from, where in South Georgia, um, it was like you were black, white, or other. 
Right. It's it's definitely different. And music shapes so much of who we are and who we become as we're growing. Andre 3000 said it very plain and very clear. The South has something to say. And so with thinking about where we are today as a country, mm-hmm. how important would you say that hip hop is in continuing to push that sociopolitical envelope and saying the things that need to be said? I think it's still central. Um, I mean, like that was one of the initial reasons that hip hop was founded. It was an opportunity for folks to voice their concerns and their frustrations. Trisha Rose said that hip hop was a theater for the for the powerless, right? Like it was an opportunity to be able to speak to these issues and concerns um, as they were as they were happening. And I think that um, even today, that is still the instance in ways that folks who might get turned off or who aren't as privy to, you know, ideas like political consciousness and all of these other big academic GRE, SAT words that we use can still participate in the conversation because of culture, because of the the music. And that's not something that has happened recently. That's something that's happened with Black folks pretty much since we've been here. So I think that, you know, what the other interesting thing is in thinking about positioning hip hop in a particular way within this idea of protest, especially now, is that it does bring up those generational anxieties and tensions, right? Like when we think about protest music from the civil rights movement, for example, you go to gospel, you know, you might even go to soul music, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And what's interesting is that a lot of the participants during that time have have voiced their concerns that the music that you hear now from Kendrick Lamar to, you know, J. Cole, um, that has been uh, re-rendered as protest anthems, uh, they're like, well, you know, you get this idea of respectability, right? The idea that that right. takes away from a purpose rather than um, enhances it. And one of the things that we don't give um, this newer generation of protesters and organizers enough credit for is that it doesn't matter. It's literally a come as you are, come with your music, come with how you're how you're dressing, right? Um, so I think that hip hop allows for that space um, to be unobjectionably black to be unobjectionably angry right um and or righteously angry right which is something that has been continued from previous movements from the civil rights movement to the black power and black liberation era aside from music and how it influences protests and things of that nature where else can you think of that we can actually see hip-hop's indelible cultural influence oh education um, there's a lot of educators who use hip hop culture as a means to to get access to their students, right? Um, so you have folks like Goldie Muhammad, uh, Bettina Love, um, Christopher Emden, who are using this idea of hip hop culture to revamp the idea of what education is supposed to do for learners and what learning actually means. Mm-hmm. I also think another thing that stands out for me in terms of, of hip hop culture is the opportunity to be able to carve space out for people to, to voice their their concerns. Again, how do we create these different types of spaces? Um, in the South, I feel like that's especially amplified because you can see the fingerprint on so many different things. You can see hip-hop and how we talk about politics. You can see hip-hop and how we talk about just the day-to-day um, living. There is a definite investment in Southern hip-hop culture. I think that the challenge, though, is making sure that we have language and and to actually critically engage it as more than just a pop cultural reference. Okay, Dr. Bradley, let's talk about what you're working on right now. Sitting on Zora's porch, notes from a Black girl in the hip-hop South. When Chronicling Stankonia came out last year, the one big question, and and for some people concerned, was that I didn't talk enough about uh, Black women and girls in the South. 
So Zora's Porch is is a blend, I think, of um, you know, personal memoir. So kind of like um, a little bit more in depth about what I experienced growing up in in Albany, um, but also kind of thinking through these major touchstones that Zora Neale Hurston is known for. So she's known for doing uh, recording and documenting Southern Black experiences. She's known for theorization. She's known for you know her interest in the paranormal. All of these things that. I also am interested in. So I feel like on the one hand, it's a homage to um, her continuing influence. Um, I often tell my students that Zora Neale Hurston is the patron saint of country black girls everywhere because she made space for us, right? Mm -hmm. It made space for Southern black women to exist on their own terms and define themselves and speak their truth to power unapologetically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to continue that. So what Zora's Porch does is is exactly that. It kind of talks about how I found my voice, how I found um, a way to navigate um, the South using similar interests that Zora Neale Hurston has written extensively about um, during her time period and just kind of updating it to think about what does that mean for contemporary Southern black women um, and girls. So it's, it's, it's more so a conversation, like a like a pickup where, where she left off type of thing. I am enjoying writing it. It's a little scarier than writing strictly uh, academic researched writing because uh-huh. um, I feel like I'm putting myself out there, but I'm hoping that it'll, it'll make way for other folks to tell their stories also. Adiba Nelson spoke with Dr. Regina Bradley, Assistant Professor of English and African Diaspora Studies at Kennesaw State University. She'll talk about her forthcoming book, Sitting on Zora's Porch, Notes from a Black Girl in the Hip-Hop South, on Tuesday, February 15th at 6 p.m. at the UA Poetry Center, as presented by the UA College of Humanities. It will also be available as a live stream. There's a link for information on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Between 1980 and 1991, the premier showcase for underground comics in the United States was a magazine called Raw. It was edited by partners Art Spiegelman and Francois Mouly. It offered the finest in sequential art from around the world, much of it biographical in nature. Spiegelman himself began to serialize the painful complexities of his own parents' story of survival from the Holocaust. These stories were told to him by his father, through a tiny dribble that over the years had leaked through the tremendous dam of emotion that he had built inside him. The illustrated book that emerged was called Mouse, spelled M-A-U-S, and it caught the world's attention. So far, it's the only graphic novel to earn a Pulitzer Award. Mouse was a way of depicting the reality of the Holocaust by making it utterly surreal. The book is perhaps second only to the diary of Anne Frank and its ability to open the eyes of young readers to history. Last month, a decision by the McMinn County School Board in Tennessee led to Mouse being banned from school libraries, citing language and a nude depiction of a female character that, I will remind you, is drawn as a cartoon mouse. These were the reasons for the book's removal. AZPM reporter Itai Sofer talked to some members of the Jewish community in Tucson for their reaction to the controversy. Sharon Glassberg is a clinical therapist with Tucson Jewish Family and Children's Services. She leads a weekly discussion group on Zoom with local Holocaust survivors. Glassberg disagrees with the criteria the McMinn School Board used in their decision to ban Mouse. They cited two examples 
to make their case to have the book banned. One was the use of a profanity and the other one was a depiction of a naked woman. It was the excuse to say that we don't need to teach our children about the Holocaust. Um, our children are not too fragile to learn about this. And it's crucial that they do learn about this. And it's a shame that they couldn't be honest and talk about their fears of their children learning the truth about history. Instead, they had to do it in a way that in my opinion was very cowardice, very cowardice. Matt Spotnitz is a PhD student in physics at the University of Arizona. He read both volumes of Mouse in high school and then again in college. I think it's disappointing that uh, people in charge of educating children would take a rather narrow view of what their education consists of. I think it's important for children to be educated on the full range of, of the human experience and, uh, and to be aware of the horrors that humanity can inflict on each other. You know, I'm, I'm gratified to see that as a result of all this, Mouse has actually shot up the bestseller charts, <laughs> so it hasn't been all bad. Next, I spoke with Rafi Chesler, also a PhD student at the U of A. I'll admit I have heard about it. I haven't read up a huge amount of the story you know, generally a terrible idea. I think banning books is the wrong direction for many reasons and in many ways. Not that everything that's won an award is good, but this Pulitzer Prize winning book, it's, you know, clearly been very impactful in a lot of ways. I didn't have any grandparents who were even, I think, living in Europe when World War II started. I think they got out before then. So fortunately, I have no direct relatives that are survivors of, I knew a lot of people growing up who had grandparents and relatives. Um, I, you know, went to Jewish school and Jewish summer camp, et cetera. And like there were numerous occasions where um, the school brought in survivors to speak and tell their story. I've met many of these people. Uh, we read Mouse 1 and 2 when I was in ninth grade. So I did read the book. And since you asked about my relationship to it, I think it's fun to mention that I went to SUNY Binghamton, which is where Art Spiegelman, the author, also went. I hope that there's a bigger conversation around why this may have happened and that, you know, somehow some good comes of it eventually. Yeah, I would say right now it's perhaps not the most surprising thing, but certainly a very negative thing and that maybe we can all learn from this somehow. Max Ellentuck is currently a chef at the Tucson Hebrew Academy. As a former Hebrew school teacher who taught mouse to eighth graders, Ellentuck has an intimate perspective on the graphic novel's ban in Tennessee. The neat thing about this book and why I'm so upset about it is Art Spiegelman put, I mean, Obviously, it's his father's story, so he put his heart and soul into this book. In the first chapter, you know, he really plays with the idea of Jews are mice, the Germans and the Nazis are cats, the Americans are dogs, the Polish are pigs, and, you know, there's other countries and they're all represented by animals. To take that idea of the cartoon and kind of flip it on its head, Spiegelman's father, he's on a train and he has to pretend to be not Jewish, pretend to be just a regular Polish soldier. So Spiegelman draws him with a pig mask over his mouse face. So I talk to the kids and I'm like, okay, which mask do you wear? Are you know, since we're Americans, we put it in that context, do you wear the dog mask every day? Do you wear just your regular mouse face? And I got these eighth graders who'd already been through a full day of school to really open up and talk about their Jewish identity, their American identity, and how they 
interact with the world, you know, something real for them, something where they were invested. So my parents both have like, they met in art school. So I grew up with a lot of like art appreciation. So I looked through this book and there's just not even pages, just single panels that really stand out for me and speak to me. It's weird to say it's my favorite, but there's a panel where Spiegelman's father and mother, they're trying to leave Poland. They're on a road. The road leads to what would normally be like a fork in the road, but Spiegelman drew it like a swastika. And I would always stop and be like, okay, what is this picture saying without saying it? And it was like, wherever they go, the Nazis are there and there's no escape. And like, that's, that's the Holocaust. You can't leave Europe. There was no place to go. It's a great piece of iconography to like look at and be like, I understand so much just in that, in that little square. Returning to Sharon Glassberg, whose history as an administrator at the Jewish Federation of Southern Arizona involved bringing Holocaust survivors to speak with elementary school students. She recommends using written testimonies like Mouse, along with the lived experience of Jewish elders to teach about the Holocaust. Learning about it first in the classroom and then hearing from the Holocaust survivor, it's no longer words on a page. They see and hear from a real person. To me, that's the way we need to teach history. As long as we're able to, that our students know that this happened to even one individual. If you can speak with and get to know the story of somebody who survived an atrocity and who was picked out of their classroom randomly one day, and said by their teacher that Jews can no longer be in this class, and then see how a whole society rallied against a group of people for nothing other than their religious connection or disability or political motivations. If that could happen then, it could happen anywhere. And by connecting A student with one person puts a name to the history. It's an amazingly profound experience. Um, I have only experienced students who have had an amazingly moving and positive reaction. And when our Holocaust survivors tell them there's no room for hate, if you are with somebody who is bullying somebody else or is stating something negative about somebody's culture or skin color or hair color, then you move as far away from that person as you can. And that's the lesson that the survivors want to impart to the students, you know, to stand up, to be not a bystander, but an upstander. And that's what this education, we hope, will empower these students. Be an upstander. Don't watch and walk away. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Itai Sofer. Have you ever had a dream that changed the way you regard a local landmark or some real-world place? Poet Matthias Valina has created a project relating to the idea of dream logic, combining real Tucson history with his surrealist reflections on what also might have been. 
Next, Andrew Brown documents a walking tour that Matthias Svelina led for about 50 participants from the Arizona Poetry Center and Mocha Tucson. They stopped at some key locations around downtown and the barrio, where Svalina describes events that never happened. Thanks for being here. This is our first stop for today, and this is the Mocha Tucson. This building was built in 1960, designed by the husband-wife architectural team of William and Sylvia Wilde, who are known for their modernist and brutalist architecture. Before it was the Mocha, it was a fire station. And before that, what sat here was the Tucson Light Factory. The Tucson Light Factory produced all of the light enjoyed in Tucson and the surrounding area from 1905 to 1932, at which point the factory was shuttered and the local light industry was privatized. My name is Matthias Felina, and I'm a poet and I run a dream delivery service. I take subscribers and every day for a month, I write dreams to them and I deliver the dreams by bike to their doors before dawn. And the dream history tour that I'm doing right now is an extension of that in which I'm trying to embed the dream logic inside of cities and sort of unearth a surrealist interpretation of a city's present and past. This building here was the site of two rival universities. One university was the University of Synonyms and the other university was the University of Cinnamon. Everything that could be learned at the University of Synonyms could be learned at the University of Cinnamon. Everything taught in every class was the same. And yet, when one student was a student of synonyms, every word of every lecture consisted of, consisted of parallel meanings. And when one was a student of the University of Cinnamon, everything taught in the lectures was a flavor, a spice. And if you lean in now, you can still smell a bit of cinnamon. Yeah, I was working in marketing in D.C. for a company that provided personal security for CEOs. Uh, and like I had four suits from the men's warehouse that I wore Monday through Thursday. And ultimately, I realized my only skill sets were teaching writing and writing weird for people. At a certain point, put those as the primary things in my life. and let everything else fall into place as it would. And, uh, you know, the trade-offs are pretty obvious. <laughs> Frequently have been told about John Dillinger being captured at the Hotel Congress, but you might not know that before he was caught there, he went for a little walk, and he ended up here, in this spot. And he stood here for a long time as the sun dipped behind the mountains, and the sky exploded pink and orange, and Dillinger closed his eyes tight, so tight the flashes of light filled the darkness. And as he stood with his eyes closed, he considered for a moment never opening them again, never returning to the world he felt he left behind, which was such a factory of broken things, such a chain of brief thrills. Rather than having a reading at the Poetry Center or something that could be easily archived, uh, I wanted to have something that happens out around town and for the most part disappears. A piece of land exists like a symphony. It exists only as it exists in the experience of it. In this way, right now, and then now, and then right now, and again. And it's like Heraclitus said about stepping in the river, but it's also like a puppy curled up 
asleep and warm in your feet. Not growing up in this environment, not growing up in this landscape, there's such a surreal visual experience of the desert and the sorrows. The daily transcendence of light out here is like a weird kink. So I brought you here to tell you about this beautiful building, the Hampton Inn over here. Um, we all know that Tucson's one of the longest continually occupied spots in North America. You might not know that this area has been populated by ghosts for much, much longer. And during the construction of the Hampton Inn, when the workers dug out the foundation, there are no signs of ghost habitation that date back to before humans had a word for time, or a word for ghosts, or a word for words, before words even had to mean anything. Like every city, you know, the history gets transformed and whitewashed and manipulated in order to tell a convenient story or tell a brand new convenient story. Tucson consists of the Tucson we can see and smell and hear and birds flitting between trees and dust blown wind and the geometries that light carves out of angles and also consists of the Tucson that cannot be seen, cannot be sensed, cannot be lived in. All of the images and all of the stuff and all the matter of experience that gets warped and twisted and reiterated and remixed inside of a dream feels like that happens inside of a, his, a city's history of itself. So there's something that is very analogous of the dream logic and the history logic for me. I brought you here because I wanted to tell you about March 22nd, 1983, when Nina Simone, the morning after performing in Tucson, sat right here crying. And a hummingbird flew up to her face. And the hummingbird buzzed once, twice around her head. On that day, at this moment, this spot became Tucson's fontanelle, the soft spot where a baby's skull is not yet fused. Beneath the fontanelle lies the city's brain, a mingling of infrastructure and history and dirt and bedrock and atrocity and love and all the unseen truths upon which a city relies. Nina Simone, crying here, split the city open, as you have so many times when so much passion and horror and terror and love gathered around you like a gown made of vines, vined of strained patience and exult, vined incidents and thorn. And with all that terror and beauty, the city opens at your feet like a galloping horse bursting into light. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. Our news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.